Welcome to Eye to Eye, the podcast of the Royal College of Ophthalmologists. My name is Sunil Mamtora, and I will be your host. Today, I'm speaking with Niru Valab, a consultant ophthalmologist with a specialist interest in glaucoma from Liverpool, and Andrew Tatham, a consultant ophthalmologist, again, with a specialist interest in glaucoma from Edinburgh. Today, we're going to be talking about the slightly controversial topic of measuring intraocular pressure. Before we get into the discussion, you know, just starting with you, Nero, could you just tell us a bit about yourself and what you do on a day-to-day basis? Hi, I'm Nero Valab. I'm one of the glaucoma consultants at the Royal Liverpool Hospital, and I'm also a clinical senior lecturer at the University of Liverpool. And Andrew, just, just again, just a bit about yourself as well, please. Hi, I'm Andrew Tatham. I'm a glaucoma consultant at the Princess Alexandra Eye Pavilion in Edinburgh, and I'm the NHS Research Scotland lead for ophthalmology. Wow. You know, before we get into intraocular pressure, I'm just going to ask you a slightly boring question. You know, firstly, Nehru, why did you choose glaucoma? So my interest in glaucoma started in year two of ophthalmology training. And what really struck me when I was seeing the patients in clinic was that we were really only treating a risk factor for the condition, but we still didn't fully understand the cause of the disease and also how to treat it and cure the condition completely. So my interest in the research into glaucoma stemmed from this point but it's also been great to work with some fantastic supervisors throughout my training and also to see the amount of advances that have occurred in the condition over time. And Andrew, how about yourself? Why did I become a glaucoma specialist? Well, I was interested in glaucoma from a young age because my grandmother was affected and I remember the really severe impact that that had on her vision. But then during my training, I was lucky to have some really good mentors um, and I actually found glaucoma clinics really interesting Um, particularly the post-operative management I found it was really interesting the interventions that we could make how we could manipulate blebs to get the pressure just where we wanted it to be and I found that really interesting process and then we've seen since then such a huge change in glaucoma how we're managing it with less invasive surgical options with more medical treatments Um, And now neuroprotective treatments on the horizon that I'm really glad that I made the choice to focus on glaucoma. Absolutely. My understanding of the literature is that there's recently been an understanding towards the etiology of normal tension glaucoma, whereby people are looking at the gradient between the intraocular pressure and the intracranial pressure and that pressure at the lamina cribrosa and that pressure gradient. This could potentially be a source of alternative treatments but my understanding is that in the entirety of clinical practice for glaucoma currently all treatments you know all treatments are centered around managing intraocular pressure there's nothing else that we're doing is there in terms of treatments or anything else that you're prescribing or doing or giving i think in recent years there's been a lot of increased um, excitement about neuroprotective therapy Uh, So going back previously, there was a lot of interest in neuroprotection um, with memantine for glaucoma. But unfortunately, the clinical trials, despite them being very robust and a lot of money and time going towards those studies, weren't conclusive. And so um, for quite some time, we had veered away from the concept of neuroprotection for glaucoma. Uh, But recent studies, which started by colleagues such as Pete Williams and James Morgan, have really sparked our interest in looking at nicotinamide for a neuroprotective therapy for glaucoma. 
Uh, and it's very exciting now to see the work funded by NIHR, by Ted Garway Heath as well, locally within the UK, and there's other studies taking part elsewhere worldwide to look at this as a potential future therapy. And so we're really excited now to see the outcomes of that, uh, because we do all acknowledge that IOP control simply isn't enough for these patients. Yeah, I mean, there's a sizable portion of people who, despite pressure lowering, still progress. Um, and we particularly see that in people with advanced glaucoma, where you know, even if we do surgery and get the pressure down to the low teens, even to 10, they, there are people who would still progress. And you know, they seem to be the patients who are at the most immediate need of treatments other than IOP lowering. But whether it's too late at that stage for neuroprotective agents to work is another matter. So we, we still don't know what, what, what the optimal timing of potential neuroprotective treatments might be. But, and at the moment, as you say, the only the only proven treatment is pressure lowering, which is why the discussion we're having about how we best measure pressure is important. So, you know, focusing on that point specifically there about intraocular pressure measurement and management, there's been a lot of discussion about this, particularly in recent years with COVID and looking at how we measure the intraocular pressure of patients, maybe in virtual settings or even remotely. Niru, in your clinical practice, how do you measure intraocular pressure when you're seeing patients yourself? Yeah, so in my clinic, we st- we still use Goldman Applination Tonometry, um, and we use the disposable Turner Safe heads to on the Goldman Applination Tonometer together with the slit lamp to measure the pressure. But throughout the rest of the eye department, uh, typically what's done is when the patient's having a visual acuity, they will have an eye care intraocular pressure done prior to dilation, and that's how it's measured. Uh, but in my clinic specifically, and, and in on my glaucoma colleagues' clinics, we're still using GAT as the measure for pressure. Yeah, we still use Goldman tonometry as well, um, because I think that it has several advantages. You, know, um, you can it's, it's quite a quick test to do. Um, if we're manipulating eyes, you know, if we've done a trabeculectomy, we're massaging the eye or removing sutures. You can you can see the change in pressure in what happened in front of you, and and IOP also the pressure in the eye is dynamic. It, it fluctuates even over seconds. And with Goldman, we've seen those sort of pulsations in that you see how the myers move when you make you applinate the cornea. You can you can get an idea about the those those uh, fluctuations in pressure. And Goldman is still regarded as the gold standard, but. It does have limitations as well, and it you know it does take a lot of training to be able to do it, and it's it's affected by the amount of fluorescein you have in the eye, and I think even you no, know, I struggle sometimes to get the right amount of fluorescein. You can have eyes that suddenly flood, and you have a massive fat myers, and you can't measure measure the pressure very well. So um uh, and and so there there are problems with it, and and um, particularly I think when it's performed by other people, and increasingly patients with glaucoma are being seen in virtual clinics where um, you know, technicians might be measuring the pressure and, and there's no way with Goldman to actually uh, understand the quality of the measurement you're getting. So so there are some limitations with it as well. But I, I think Goldman still has a very important place in, in clinical practice. And But there are, there, are, there are quite a few different tonometers that we can discuss. And I, I think there are roles for other types of tonometry apart from Goldman. Andrew, you mentioned virtual clinics there. And the time taken to train potentially allied health professionals or technicians in the skills needed to perform golden vaccination tonometry. How do you measure pressure in patients in virtual clinics? So in our virtual clinics, we use the ocular response analyzer, um, which is it's an air puff tonometer. 
So, um, you know, for years we were telling optometrists that the pneumatic sonometers weren't very good. Um, but it turns out actually the, the ocular response analyzer is actually very good. It might, it might be better in Goldman. Um, and I think that the, um, the advantages of that are that it's non, non-contact. So you don't, you don't need to put anesthetic drops into the eye. It gives you a quality score. So you have some idea of the accuracy of the measurement. But the biggest advantage, and, and this isn't just regarding the its use in virtual clinics, is it tells us about the biomechanical properties of the cornea as well. Um, so, you know, um, the, it was the ocular hypertension treatment study which showed us the importance of measuring corneal thickness. And now we, we, you know, you, we always check the central corneal thickness in every glaucoma patient. But um, it's not really the thickness of the cornea that's the most important factor. It's um, it's the there's more, there's the biomechanical property, the elasticity of the cornea. Um, and the, the ocular response analyzer is one device that can that can enable us to measure that and then therefore interpret the pressure perhaps a little bit more accurately. And it was, the UK glaucoma treatment study um, actually showed that the measurements from the ocular response analyzer that are com- compensated for the corneal biomechanics were a better predictor of future visual field loss than Goldman tonometry. Why is the corneal elasticity an important metric? Yes, that's a really important question. So what it's felt is that if the cornea is able to resist deformation, it might actually reflect the constitution of its extracellular matrix. So that essentially if a cornea is much more deformable, it is likely that the similar extracellular matrix composition is seen for the posterior ocular tissues. And hence what actually happens if if the cornea is softer in a sense and can deform easily, it's likely that the lamina cabrosa will also deform much more easily with the same intraocular pressure load. And so that's more likely to result in glaucomatous changes and retinal ganglion cell loss. I think that's really interesting because that's you know directly proportional change in tissue and risk factor for glaucomatous damage whereas in contrast measuring corneal thickness to my understanding it's just more of an adjustment factor for the intraocular pressure rather than a relationship as to how likely the tissue is to deform at the nerve level yeah precisely Niru, how about your virtual clinics how how do you undertake them in liverpool um so we have uh technicians that are trained in taking gat so we perform gat but but really? we have um, we have an interest in thinking about the ocular response analyzer. We're we're looking at having trials for that because we're aware of the importance of it. We've previously looked um, used the Corvus ST in in studies, but we haven't used that within a virtual setting. We we don't have access to that at present. But we are exploring one of these techniques uh, for pressure measurement for our virtual service as well. Okay, you mentioned Corvus. You know what? What is that? Um, so Corvus is a another type of non-contact tonometer. Um, so instead of with the uh, Corvus, it has a shine plug camera instead. So it's supposed to have higher resolution imaging of the um, air puff and the impact that it has on the cornea. And so the instrument allows you to measure the central corneal thickness and also it evaluates a parameter called the BIOP which is supposed to be accounting for age, pachymetry and biomechanics of the cornea that's measured from the instrument. Now one of the big differences between these um, air puff tonometers that um, measure the biomechanical properties of the cornea 
and central corneal thickness is that you can't correct the IOP for central corneal thickness. And when pachymeters first became available, um, there's actually still one available that which will calculate a corrected IOP for you, but it's not valid to do that. And I, I still see some people writing down their measured IOP and then the corneal corrected IOP based on the central corneal thickness. And I just, just to emphasize people not to do that. And when you're thinking about um, corneal thickness, I think it's more helpful just to think in terms of very thin cornea, average cornea, very thick cornea, and just uh, just to, to think of about how that affects the IOP measurement in your head. You can't you can't actually correct it. But it's different for these these devices like the ocular response analyzer because when you know more about the biomechanical properties of the cornea, then you can you can actually calculate a corneal compensated IOP. So it's just just an important sort of distinction to make. Yeah, I I agree. I, I absolutely advocate the fact that we shouldn't be saying, okay, the patient's pressure was 21, but minus six, it's actually okay. So let's, you know, that's a controlled pressure. That shouldn't be the way that we approach the use of central corneal thickness. I emphasize what Andrew said, that absolutely it should just be that you it, you note that the patient has a thinner cornea or a thicker cornea. And you, you do find that some of these normal tension glaucomas have interestingly very thin corneas when you see these patients. But um we shouldn't be subtracting or adding numbers here and there to to put them into our normal range and and say continue you know that shouldn't be the practice that we take interesting you know i've always learned that you know comparing the cornea to a tire you know when you've got a thick tire and you kick that tire it's harder to deform it with a thicker cornea you may be overestimating your pressure and with a thinner cornea you you might be at the risk of underestimating but slightly confusingly I, you know, when I learned early on in my training, when you've got corneal edema, that same logic doesn't apply because you may have a thicker cornea, but actually the tissue is more mushy or waterlogged. And therefore, you know, when you've got a thicker cornea due to corneal edema, and so you may be underestimating the, the intraocular pressure in those situations. So, Andrew, you mentioned before that aura might actually be better than Goldman application tonometry. And I'm just wondering if that's the case, why don't you just do it for every patient as part of your routine practice? Is it the cost? Um, well, one of the disadvantages of the Aura is it's it's a large device um, and um, it takes up a lot more space than a Goldman tonometer does. Um, and so it's not really very, I think if you are going to use an ocular response analyzer or, or, or a Corvus, um, a device that accounts for the corneal biomechanics, then you have to think about your clinic layout a little bit differently. You couldn't have one in every room, for instance. So you might say, well, I'll have this in a room where the vision's checked so that you can check the pressure there. And then there's an issue about, well, if you if you want to check the pressure after an intervention or you want to recheck the pressure during the visit, how do you do that? Because the device is in a different room with, with perhaps with your other imaging equipment. So you definitely, if you wanted to implement this into, into a clinic, you'd have to think about your clinic layout. So that, that's one potential barrier to it. Um, the cost, I don't think the cost is necessarily a barrier to use um, I mean within the virtual clinics we, we we had to justify including it within a virtual clinic and if you think about the cost of disposable tonometer heads you know, there are, um, and and the cost of drops um, and then the, 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 the no it's not necessarily over the long term 
going to be more expensive but there's obviously quite a large initial outlay when you're when you if you were to buy a device like this so um uh, yeah, cost isn't necessarily a barrier, but I think I think in an ideal world, if I had glaucoma, I'd like to know what my corneal hysteresis is. I'd like to know what my corneal compensated IOP is, and um, uh, so I think having a baseline measure of hysteresis is is useful. It's useful for predicting the risk of whether you're going to progress over time. Um, but then it does change as well. It's, it changes hysteresis of the cornea changes more than the thickness of the cornea does. So there, there are uncertainties about how often you might need to measure it, and it's affected by the pressure in the eye as well. Because if the if the pressure in the eye is high, then the hysteresis will be slightly lower because the tension under which the cornea is placed. Um, it's affected by age and by medications as well. Um, so it's a little bit more complicated than just the thickness. Yeah, Andrew, do you think that the corneal hysteresis measurements can give us some insight into the way that certain medications interact with the diagnosis of glaucoma or the progression of glaucoma? So there's some evidence that has emerged that prostaglandin analogues can affect the corneal hysteresis um, and they can actually lead to a reduction in hysteresis. They can increase the elasticity slightly of the cornea, which might actually... Um, affect how the IOP is, the changes in IOP are measured um, with uh, when when people are treated proscan analogs. But I'm not sure, I'm not sure that has a huge importance for clinical practice, really. Um, I suppose one of the important points um, is that we need to be consistent as well with what we're measuring and how we're measuring it. So that's a, that's a disadvantage. If, if you're having a patient who every single visit has been measured with a Goldman tonometer and then you switch to another device, that could have potential issues because um, when, when tonometers are actually approved, the, um, the, the, the International Organization for Standardization, they, they have guidelines. They're, they're basically a, um, a, a federation of um, national standard bodies um, and they, they have guidelines on um, tonometers and, and how agreement between different tonometers should be and that they they actually require an agreement of five millimeters of mercury which is, is is quite large that's quite could be potentially quite a large difference between different tonometers yeah no, it's interesting that you say that you know five millimeters of mercury is a large and a significant difference between measurements and i, I suppose this is a difficult question to answer but how much or what amount of IOP change would make you change management? You know, because if we're talking, say, if we're saying that, for example, an eye care might have at most a difference of two millimetres of mercury difference between a Goldman measurement, would is that significant enough to change your management? It, it can be quite proportional in a sense, because I think when we think about the landmark studies, the commonly quoted percentage reduction is normally 25 to 30% pressure lowering to achieve um, a sig significant improvement and reduce visual field progression. So if you're thinking about, say, a patient with a high pressure, obviously, you know, it, it, say 30 millimetres of mercury, that's a lot more pressure lowering than if you've got a normal tension glaucoma patient who's, you know, has a thin cornea and is starting with a pressure of 12 and an advanced visual field progression, then definitely that if there's a, a difference of five millimetres of mercury can can make a significant impact on their care and, and their follow-up. I think the tricky thing is that we've been using the Goldman Applination Tonometer since the 1950s. We haven't really 
changed much and all of these landmark studies have been performed using this technique as well. So although we know that there's increasing evidence to support these newer techniques, globally there'll be a cost implication and I think it's also about deciding which of these newer techniques we use, whether it's the ORA or whether it's the Corvus and I think that's the difficulty will be getting a consistent uh, opinion across a, a, a group of glaucoma consultants and, and then deciding what to do going forward, really. I'll just say the other tonometry we haven't mentioned much is, of course, um, the, the eye care and uh, rebound tonometry, which um, so that's probably had one of the biggest impacts on practice. Um, and I remember when I started training and trying to measure the pressure in children and babies was really impossible you'd have to you'd have to frequently do examinations or under anesthesia to measure the pressure and particularly for pediatrics you know the eye care has really changed things and it's used um, you know, as Nira you were saying it's used outside of glaucoma clinics really as as the go-to tonometer now I think for, for med, med rec clinics and um, I know when IVT lists they, they really just use the they use the re rebound tonometry pretty much universally and and it you know it, and you can see why because it's it's quick it's easy it doesn't need a lot of training um, and it's very comfortable for patients um, but it's still hasn't for uh, I know it's interesting to us uh, to discuss why you know why don't we use it in glaucoma clinics uh, <laughs> why why do uh, why do we stick with government tonometry and I think I think it's partly to do with the accuracy um, and particularly at extreme uh, extremes of pressure it's not as accurate um, and we are perhaps more interested about trying to determine small changes in pressure which um, no, if, if you're trying to determine whether there's a five millimeter or ten millimeter change in pressure, then lots of different types of tonometer will probably suffice. But when we're trying to have re very highly reproducible pressure measurements, um, then we we do like Goldman still. <laughs> Creatures of habit. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> How much does intraocular pressure change during the day? You know, to what extent is there diurnal variation in IOP measurement? We absolutely do see changes in diurnal IOP and. Um, I think this is something that we're very aware of when we're seeing our patients in clinic and just measuring the pressure on on one occasion. And I think this is where, especially, for example, these patients that are progressing and we feel their pressure is controlled, um, there is definitely place for home phasing um, and is something that is important to determine if they are spiking at other times of the day. Because we do know pressure naturally goes up overnight as well. Yeah, I suppose my argument would be that if, for example... The level of diurnal variation that exists is likely to be more than the difference between the measurement techniques, be it you know eye care and Goldman. Is it such a problem that there's a small small difference between the measurement techniques? Mm. Yeah, I mean we are trying to measure a moving target when we measure IOP, and uh, there can be quite large fluctuations during the day and and night. And for the majority of people, peak pressure happens. Um, during the night during the early hours of the morning quite frequently so there might be some patients who are progressing with a seemingly normal pressure when in fact the pressure is high outside of the normal clinic hours and you now we check the pressure once or twice in a year 
where the, the pressure can change quite a lot, even during a day. Um, and um, I mean, we, you, we mentioned about how practice has changed um, since COVID and how perhaps we are checking pressure slightly differently, maybe using eye care more often, using non-contact, quicker ways of checking pressure more often. But another thing that changed is that I don't think many people are phasing anymore and sort of admitting people into hospital for the day, you know, sitting around in the clinic isn't really something people wanted to do during a pandemic. And, you know, we, we don't do it very much now. So um, something we did is started using the home eye care and um, loaning patients the, you know, the home eye care and uh, um, get them to check the pressure at home. And in fact, we had some people during the pandemic who couldn't get into hospital where we would post out the eye care to them and they measured their own pressure and then would post it back to us and uh, give us quite a lot of information. So I think there are different different ways of, of of working now and and maybe home tonometry will have a role um there are issues with it though i know how reliable is the information we get from home tonometry um is, does it really matter because um if a patient is stable then it really if their visual field isn't changing and their disc isn't changing, then it doesn't really matter what their pressure is, arguably. <laughs> no. And if, if somebody is if somebody's progressing, then then they need a lower pressure. Um, do we actually need to measure what that pressure is and characterize its its 24 hour properties? Maybe not. We just need to lower it. I've heard about some individuals actually purchasing their own home care um, IOP monitor and monitoring it regularly themselves. And, and there's a concern about the anxiety that might be induced with that, similar to a patient who might have their own blood pressure monitor at home and is regularly monitoring it. So we just have to be wary of, um, you know, patients using it and, and how often and in which cases and obviously providing them the support that they may require if they have their own system and um, to ensure that we're not inducing anxiety in that patient group. Well, that leads on to an interesting question, though, Niru, in that, you know, we know that there's a white coat effect with anxiety and blood pressure. Is there a white coat effect for intraocular pressure? <laughs> no, there isn't a white coat effect in a sense for <sighs> intraocular pressure. You can find that if a patient drinks a lot of water or if there's a Valsalva effect that the pressure can change. Um, and perhaps if there's incorrect technique in taking the pressure, you could get erroneous measurements. But no no true white coat effect in a sense. <laughs> Andrew, you know, it was fascinating to hear that you post home eye care or home IOP monitoring technologies to patients' homes for them to do that themselves. I think that's amazing. I've never heard of anyone else doing that before. And I suppose it really brings home the message that the biggest cost in the healthcare sector is the human cost. The human cost of having the resources and the staff available to measure a single patient's IOP all day is much more valuable than potentially the funding that might be required to purchase these types of equipment, maybe. Yeah, I think um, there is a potential that by displacing some patients from the clinic, by by monitoring patients in their own homes, we might have less footfall in hospital clinics and perhaps that would save money. But then, then there will be resources needed in other areas. You know, how, how do we... How do we look at all of the results? You know, um, how do we support patients to be able to do this? Is it going to take more time to train someone to monitor their own glaucoma than it would to just quickly see them in a virtual clinic? And also, what about the? Are there going to be issues in terms of 
the quality of access to these sort of technologies and being able to use these technologies and um, so there's a lot of potential barriers. Might we have people where there are false alarms who people will ring up worried about one erroneous pressure measurement? Um, so that there, there, are, there are certainly concerns about it. Will it actually change outcomes? Do, you know, having more measurements isn't necessarily better. If it, it might not, it might not provide any added value. You know, we, we have to remember that a lot of patients with glaucoma are quite low risk anyway. Low, they might be low, at low risk of visual loss. And, 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 and what kind of patients might benefit most from having more measurements? So there's, a lot, there's lots of unknowns. We've, we've actually um, just completed an NIHR-funded study called the ITRAC study, which was, which was looking at the feasibility of home glaucoma monitoring. And, and as part of that study, we gave them uh, patients. There's a small number of patients uh, done, done in three centres. It was in Nottingham, in Belfast, in Edinburgh. And we gave them iPads to monitor their visual function at home. And we gave them home tonometers as well for three months just to see, was it, could patients actually do it? And what, it, might it be feasible? And we had we had um, focus groups with clinicians and patients trying to look at and trying to answer some of these questions. And um, we're, we're just, I'm not sure I can share much of the results with you, but because it, we haven't quite published it. But um, I think it's going to be very interesting to look at the results of that. And, uh, and, uh, and I, th I think the conclusion will be that, that home monitoring is feasible, but in who? Which, which groups of patients would it be most useful for? I'm really looking forward to hearing the results of that. Huh. Yeah, I suppose, as with everything, the key is patient selection. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And patients, though, might self-select with this. I think um, <laughs> they're... they're, they're... Mm. Maybe younger patients, more technically competent, yes, more engaged yes, patients yes. might be more enthusiastic. I think it's... we were, I, like, Similar to me, I'll be really excited to hear about the results from that. I think that's the difficulty with clinical trials as well, often that you get the, the type of patients that you get enrolling in clinical studies and who are willing to take part in research that's being performed are usually the ones that are highly motivated and um, and interested in their condition. And this is often the difficulty we have with clinical research as a whole is the individuals that we, we have as part of these studies. One area that we haven't talked about so far is tonopen. Now, yeah, personally... I'm slightly averse towards the tonopen, but you haven't mentioned that at all. Do you use it? What do you think of it? Nowadays, with with the eye care being as good at, as it is, um, to be honest, you you know you, you can. I often wish I had it on some of my own calls back in the day because I remember taking the tonopen around and trying to to use it and calibrate it. And I think the eye care is 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 much better than than the tonopen. Uh, Andrew, what, what's your experience of tonopen? Do you use it in your clinical practice? Yeah, no, I haven't. I haven't used it for years. I think, um, yeah, I remember just on call trying to take it with me to, to but, but yeah, the eye care I think is has sort of taken over and is for the kind of indication that tonopen was used. I, I remember there one of uh, a, a well-known glaucoma consultant telling me that it was a random number generator. <laughs> I think that that was probably. <laughs> I don't, I'm not sure that's quite true, but uh, it's not. I don't. It's not used very much. It's not used very much. I, I, though, though, I think um, one of one of the other things I think it's important to mention as well is that although we've focused in the podcast about talking about IOP, 
that that isn't the most important thing to measure in glaucoma. It's more there are measuring the visual field, visual function, measuring the optic nerve as well is perhaps more more important because all the measurements we take in glaucoma they're subject to noise, and we've said that you know the IOP has diurnal variations, it has long-term fluctuation, and the measurement the tools we use to actually measure IOP as well are imperfect. Um, but um, the, some of the the other measures we use, even visual field is subject to fluctuation, but probably less so than IOP is. And and things, very objective measurements like um, measurements from OCT as well fluctuate a lot less. Um, so we, we shouldn't focus just on IOP. It's, it, it's an important risk factor, but it's, it's not the most important factor in terms of diagnosis or looking at progression. Yes, the difficulty is it's the only modifiable risk factor in a sense, and that's why we are so focused on it, because reducing it is the only evidence-based therapy for glaucoma at the moment. That's that's the reality of the situation. But, but absolutely, like Andrew says, there's there's much more to glaucoma than this alone, and and hopefully with future research and progress, you know, we'll be able to make, uh, use those other findings, including things like, polygenic risk scoring and other biomarkers to help assess patients that are more at risk than others and also help to divert our resources accordingly to the patients that need it most rather than the ocular hypertension that's been stable and doesn't need any treatment for years in clinic to those who have m many more genetic changes that show that they're more likely to progress and need the attention, need um, that regular monitoring. Um, but at the moment, it's that we're not quite there, but it's on the horizon, it is coming in the future. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting and it makes me think of this potentially controversial point which is you know if you solely looked at rates of progression and changes in retinal nerve fiber layer thickness and solely changed your titration of IOP management around that without even measuring the intraocular pressure would it lead to the same outcomes well I, I think um they one measuring the t setting a target pressure, the target IOP, that is still essential. And when when we see a new patient, we we look at several factors to try and determine their target pressure. It's helpful, I think, to write down the target pressure in the notes, and then at each visit we revisit the target pressure and we revise it up or down and people can have different target pressures in each eye as well, and target pressure can be affected by um, somebody's life expectancy by systemic diseases by family history so yeah we do consider we have to consider the whole picture holistically when we're trying to set a target pressure um and then we look as, as you were saying we look at progression and look at rates of change in rnfl in visual field and then revise the target pressure but I, I don't think we should be doing that without measuring pressure at all. I, don't, I, think, <laughs> I, think, I think pressure is very important. Um, and yeah, it's the only thing we can modify. Um, you know, Nero, you mentioned earlier that in your virtual clinics, you still perform Goldsman affination tonometry on every patient. And in a large part, that's done by your excellent glaucoma nurses and technicians or other members of the team. I'm interested to know, how long does it take you to train someone from scratch to be competent at performing Goldman affination tonometry? You know, how do you validate their competency in that? Because it's you know, often hard to you know, measure how good somebody is at doing this, given that we know that there's an established body of literature which 
does show there is significant inter-observer variability in the measurements. Yeah, well, I mean, thankfully, when I I started working at AIM, I work across two sites. I worked at Aintree University Hospital. Um, so there they have a training procedure for the technicians where they will um, teach them how to do it and they will validate their pressure measurements. And I think of it similarly when you get a new... Uh, someone who's a new trainee, for example, in ophthalmology who's never measured pressure before, um, what I'll often do is to teach them the technique, the importance of fluorescein um, and not having too much fluorescein in the eye. And I will often validate their pressure measurements for the first, I'd say, 15 to 20 patients. So I'm going and checking the pressure again after they've measured the pressure and just seeing if, if I'm getting similar results. Being mindful of the fact that there may be one to two millimetres of mercury difference, but I just want to check that there's no gross change differences in their technique, simply because I know what it was like when I first started measuring the pressure and you think you're, you're getting a pressure and you realise your fingers on, uh, as you're holding up the eyelid, you're actually pressing on the globe and inducing a pressurise yourself. So, you know, these are all techniques that we've all had to learn once upon a time, but I think it, it can be done definitely, but it obviously does take time um, to supervise and, and ensure that, the pressure measurements are the same between myself and, and that person or that individual. Mm. That's really interesting. I think when I first started training, I think it was probably one of the things that I found most frustrating and you know, often quite fiddly. You, know, you may have quite a, a large patient who might be holding their breath, squeezing their eyelids. You may end up having your, you know, your myas thicken, uh, often without any warning whatsoever having to you know, constantly dab the eye, reinstill fluorescein, uh, put in anaesthetic, which can sting, and all these kinds of things. So I think it is often underestimated as a skill about how sometimes difficult it can be. You know, even many, many thousands of measurements later, personally, I probably still think it's one of the more fiddly aspects of the slit lamp examination. Yeah, I think it... it we it isn't necessarily an easy thing to do um, and that also it's not easy for some patients you know we still see some adults who just can't tolerate application tonometry and um, I remember one patient actually just he doesn't like anybody going near his eye whatsoever and we couldn't even measure his pressure with an eye care and um, I, I gave him an eye care home and he was absolutely fine. He could measure his own pressure with the eye care home and that was the only way we could measure pressure in him. So, so maybe we, we think about personalised medicine. Maybe different patients need different ways of checking their pressure. It's good we have a few different options available at least. <laughs> yeah, so we've, I think we've agreed that measuring intraocular pressure is clearly something that's very important, not just in glaucoma, but amongst all subspecialties. But what do you think are the potentially unmet needs that we have currently in measurement of intraocular pressure? I think one concern is um, something that which I didn't mention earlier was also plastic waste with Goldman application tonometry. So I think in the, in in this day and age, the amount of plastic um, that we're using is obviously a, a key focus, um, and and we are essentially just using a tonometer head each time. Um, so that's one thing that that is very important, and we do need to consider with the method that we use going forward. What about prisms? You know, in terms of prisms being the biggest source of that plastic waste 
Why have we transitioned from reusable prisms to disposable prisms? We transitioned from uh, reusable prisms to uh, single-use prisms um, due to the risk of infection, um, particularly with uh, CJD and uh, prion-related infections. Um, uh, so I don't, I don't think anywhere in the UK now uses uh, reusable prisms, as far as I'm aware. But there are other countries where they do. Um, so, so I think obviously um, when you think about COVID and there was a concern because uh, the virus was isolated from conjunctiva and tears, there's a concern about transmission as a result. And obviously at that time, microaerosols was a worry. So things like the ocular response analyzer or the Corvus would not be ideal because of the risk of aerosol displacement. Whereas if you used um, a golden apination tonometer, at least it was just contact for that second to the ocular surface and then you could dispose of those so these are i think we're in a new world now where we have to consider these things uh going forward as well there what yeah there what you're absolutely right i remember at the beginning of the pandemic there was a recommendation that you shouldn't use some um, air puff tonometers for a while do you think that was a bit overkill at the time the world was a very strange place and there was a lot of uh, there were a lot of unknowns um, but and people had some very innovative ways of uh, monitoring patients. They would drive through drive through uh, tonometry clinics, and it it has changed how we manage glaucoma as well. With a far greater proportion of patients seen in you know, imaging hubs and, and virtual clinics, and and I suppose that's the other. Um, unmet need is that um, if you think about the tests we use we, we've we really we've gone digital haven't we and and goldman tonometry is one of the few things that uh, that isn't really digital we have to we'd have to manually enter the results into an electronic record and so um, that's another potential advantage of some of the newer um, uh, tonometers that particularly the ones that compensate for the cornea um, in that they can be um, networked and automatically export measurements into someone's electronic record. I've just got one final question really now for both of you separately, if that's okay. And, you know, supposing the scenario where you've been referred yourself from the community optometrist to the hospitalised service for suspected glaucoma, and say that there was an option for you to personally decide the modality with which you would have your intraocular pressure measured from day one at the hospitalised service until eternity, what would you, how would you like to have your own intraocular pressure measured? That's a really great question. I would definitely want to have a form of corneal hysteresis measurement to really understand the biomechanics of the cornea and not just the central corneal thickness. And I would also hope to have home phasing performed, uh, perhaps on one or two days, just to really understand the profile of my intraocular pressure and what was happening at differing hours of the day. Yeah, I, I would agree. I would like to know what my the biomechanics of my cornea. Um, and I'm a squeezer as well. I hate eye drops and I'm, I, I'm not very good at anything going near my eyes. So I think I, I, I like the idea of a non-contact tonometer. And be, but being able to measure my pressure at home as well, I think I'd, I would find that reassuring. But I think we're probably different though as ophthalmologists. And I'm not sure the majority of patients actually um, are that interested in measuring their pressure at home. But uh, I might be wrong. That's really interesting. You know, I don't want to put any words in your mouth and say that you both think that the future of Goldman may be limited. But it's interesting to hear that, you know, 
if you were both to have glaucoma yourself, that you may in some regards prefer the non-contact method. Personally, I hate things going near my eyes as well. And the idea of, you know, potentially someone banging a tonometer against my cornea and <laughs> causing a corneal abrasion, I, that, that frightens me. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the difficulty is with, with ophthalmology is, is change as well. I mean, it took a long time for Snellen to change across to Logmar. And I think for Goldman to do that in the future, if it was to change to one of these modalities, I think we do need that consensus opinion uh, of where to go uh, in the future. But uh, I guess watch the space. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? And I suppose it's going to be something that, given that there's so many different types of measuring intraocular pressure, with more coming all the time, you know, as you say, tying that tying measurements into the established body of research is going to be something that's going to be hard to change that reference standard or that gold standard way of performing that test. Yeah, I think it's going to be very interesting to see in the future how how we use home tonometry and um, maybe in the future we will be using it for you know for newly diagnosed patients and if we think about systemic hypertension you know, now um, having outside of clinic measurements is really important for the in, in terms of the diagnosis so it's become essential um, whereas for, for for ocular hypertension and for glaucoma it's not um, and I think I think there will be an increasing role for home tonometry in the future whether that will make our clinics any quieter I'm not sure <laughs> that's exciting and you know look who knows all of the things that we talked about might even become irrelevant if there's say something like an iop measuring contact lens which everyone can use themselves all the time anyways definitely i think that's that's another um exciting area of research which we're seeing we're seeing leaps and bounds in all the time but um again it will be useful to see what happens in the future i suppose the conclusion really is as niru said Watch this space. Yeah, glaucoma is an exciting specialty. That's another good conclusion. And there's lots of exciting developments. Yeah, we're just trying to recruit you in, Sunil. <laughs> <laughs> let's see, let's see. Um, well, you know, Niru, Andrew, thank you so much for your time today. That's been a really interesting conversation. And I'm going to be excited to see where the future brings us in terms of IOP measurement. Thanks, Sunil. Thanks, Niru. Thank you. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Sunil. Thank you.